Matthew chapter 5, this is our text today. We've been working our way gradually through the Beatitudes, a section of Scripture that I dare say most of us could probably recite by heart just because it is such a familiar section of Scripture, but it's a section of Scripture that because it's so familiar, we don't always take the necessary time to stop and think through and dwell upon. And uh, this has been a, a particularly challenging section of Scripture to me in my own walk as Jesus and his teaching has laid out for us what the life of the disciple will look like. And we, we've been working our way through uh, these very simple but yet profound statements of our Lord. And today we come back down to Matthew chapter 5, verse 8. Now, this is a section that I had kind of tacked onto my notes the last time we were together, hoping that maybe we could get to it. And yet, the more that I thought about it the last time we were together, the more that I realized it really does require its own separate treatment. Because as I was thinking about it, I realized that this really, while it may be a very familiar concept, is one of the most difficult of the Beatitudes to really unravel. And the reason why is because the stakes of what is presented to us here in this eighth verse of chapter five in the Gospel of Matthew are really so very high. When you actually stop and read it and think about it, your first reaction might be to say, really? Is that really true? And if that's really true, am I in trouble or not? Because here's what we're told in Matthew 5.8. It says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And Jesus very unequivocally here ties these two ideas together. On the one hand, the idea of purity, and on the other hand, the idea of reconciliation to God and, and sight of him very closely together. Now, the trouble for us is that we all understand the nature of our lives and that which we struggle with on a daily basis. And we, we stop and we ask ourselves the question, if, if purity is the prerequisite for ultimately seeing the person of God himself, what does that mean for me now in my daily life? That's a very difficult concept to work through, but clearly because the stakes are so very high here in this statement, it is equally important that we thoroughly understand it and have worked our way through it. And that's what we intend to do this morning. How can a person who is impure see God? That ultimately is the question that pretty much every religion seeks to answer at some point. How do I live in such a way as to be able to see God? Fundamentally, every religion is a moral code of sorts, right? You do the following actions and you'll earn the right to see God. And Jesus here says, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. What does he mean by that? And how is Christianity different from every other religion? Is Jesus advocating here for doing the right things and being pure and then you'll see God? Well, that's what the Jews understood in their day. Let me break this down for us here. Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. The Jews, the Jewish people of that day, they certainly believed in God, right? I mean, they, they very much believed that God was real and that he was present and that they were supposed to be obe obedient to him. And they also certainly understood the importance of purity as well, did they not? Right? They understood that we have to live a certain way in order to see God. 
So what was the peace that they were missing? Jesus gives it to them and to us here, right in the middle of this verse. And you can't skip over these two very important words. Blessed are the pure in what? Heart. That is the distinction. And it is a distinction that cannot be missed. You see, the Jewish people of Jesus' day believed that the way to know God was by walking down a pathway of purity. You start with purity and you end up finding God. That's what they believed and that's how they lived. If you can just be pure enough, ultimately you'll find your way to him. If you live a good life, then you'll be accepted into a relationship with God. There's only one very important problem with that. That is not the order of the Beatitudes as they are given to us here in Matthew chapter 6. Jesus did not start with this command on purpose, right? Now, we have to remember that the Beatitudes all flow out of one another and therefore their order is very, very important. And it's important to realize here that Jesus does not begin his list of things that will characterize a disciple with a command to purity. It's only after the relationship has been established. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are they who mourn over their sin. Blessed are they who are meek before God, understanding their place before him, that he then gets into the behaviors that will characterize a believer. You see, the Jewish people had it totally backwards. And this morning, to illustrate that, just to, just to help set the context of where the audience was that Jesus was speaking to, let's go to Matthew chapter 19 and see for just a couple of moments here the story of the rich young ruler, typical of the people to whom Jesus was speaking. This is how he understood the pathway to a relationship with God. Now, as we drop ourselves down here onto page 994 of my Bible, let's not lose sight of the fact that this was not paper and ink for these people, right? This was real life. It would have been a hot day, as pretty much every day is in Israel, as Jesus is teaching. We don't know, we're not told the size of the crowd here in this text, but I think it's important for us to hover over this circle of conversation that's happening between Jesus, his disciple, and, and this young man who comes to speak with him looking for some answers. And so as we drop down into the dust of this conversation circle and, and listen into this epic battle of wits happening behind, between this very well-trained young man who is a member of the, the ruling class and our Lord, let's not miss sight of the fact that he is asking serious questions and he is seeking for serious answers. He's not messing around and neither is Jesus as he responds to him. Here's what it says in Matthew chapter 19, verse 16. Someone came to him and said, Teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? Don't miss the emphasis of his question there. He's saying, what good thing must I do? Do you see the focus, the emphasis of what he believes is the right pathway to God? He says, well, I clearly haven't seen him yet. I clearly haven't gotten there. And so in this rich young ruler's mind, he's thinking, I'm missing something important. I haven't done 
something that I should have done, I just don't know what it is. Tell me what the action is, and that will send me down the pathway that I need, this pathway of purity in order to find God. He's, he's starting at the, at the wrong point. He's assuming that you start with purity, and then you find God. And he's missed the point altogether, which is what Jesus tells him there in verse 17. Jesus essentially says in verse 17, you're missing the point. You're focusing on good actions as the foundation, but you've missed the starting point, which is the greatest of the commandments. Jesus says, why are you asking me about what is good? There is only one who is good. And if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. Jesus is working him through this concept of a relationship to God. Jesus' statement flies right over his head and wings out into the Galilean countryside. The ruler essentially responds by saying, what do you mean? Keep the commandments. Which ones? And Jesus responds to him and says, well, you shall not commit murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus names a few. The ruler says, well, I've done those things. What do you mean I'm still lacking? And now Jesus, having brought him to this point, gets down to brass tacks, right? He says, go, leave everything, and then don't miss this. Follow me. Walk with me in a relationship. Abandon everything and come with me, having established a relationship with me, and that is what you must do. His message to this young man is essentially that life doesn't come from what you do. It comes from me. Your relationship to me then dictates what you do in relationship to keeping the law. And what does the ruler do? When the young man heard this statement, he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. He throws up his hands and he walks away. This idea of a relationship with the holy God, having to actually acknowledge the poverty of your sin, mourn your sin, and forsake all of it, it was too much for him to handle. And so he throws himself back into his system of actions, foregoing the fundamental relationship that allows those actions to mean anything. You see, Jesus wasn't just looking for purity He was looking for purity, not in this man's actions, but first and foremost, in this man's heart. And the only way that a heart can be pure is as it is situated in relationship to God. You see, a relationship with God, it it generates a desire for purity of heart, and that cannot be the other way around. You don't start with purity and then go to the relationship. You start with the relationship and that then naturally will result in a heart that desires to be pure. Greater relationship manifests itself in a lifestyle of purity. And if purity in heart is the key to a more profound understanding of God and the key to seeing him, then the obvious question that sits in front of all of us this morning here is very simply this. How do I become pure in heart? And the answer starts way back up in beatitude number one. You see, it starts with your relationship to God. If you're sitting here this morning wondering, why is my heart not pure? Why is my, the actions that flow from my heart 
not pure. And how do I get them to be pure? How do I, okay, I understand the connection between heart and actions, that if my actions are impure, it means my heart is impure. But if my actions are impure, how do I get my heart to be pure? Then you have to go back and assess and address the fundamental relationship that exists between you and God. It begins with a focus on your relationship to God, you see. He's already told us, Jesus has already told us, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Blessed are those who who recognize the the condition of your relationship to God, that, that you have nothing before him, you are nothing before him. Blessed are those who then mourn the poverty of your sinfulness before him. Blessed are those who are meek and and live in light of who he is and who we now know ourselves to be. He's essentially saying, blessed are those who, who have a vibrant relationship with God where they see themselves clearly and they see him very clearly. And only once that relationship has been established does your life begin to conform as well. And that's really the section that, we're in, that we've been in here the past three times we've been together. He says, if you have a relationship, then you will do three things, right? You, you will hunger and thirst for righteousness. You will be merciful. And now here he gets down to this statement, you will have a pure heart as well. And so with the foundation of a relationship in place, let's investigate this command from the Lord to pursue a heart of purity and and just ask ourselves some questions as we think about this concept of being pure in heart. Let's, Let's walk our way around this idea by asking some questions about what does that mean and how do I do it? So the first question we have to ask is just simply for the purpose of defining the terms. We have to ask ourselves the question, what is this purity? What does he mean when he says, blessed are the pure in heart? What does it look like to be pure in heart? What is the definition of being pure in heart? Well, we have to start by looking at the perfect standard of what it means to be pure in heart. And I hate to tell you, but you are not that perfect standard. Neither am I or anyone else around here, right? He doesn't say, blessed are the pure in action. He says, blessed are the pure in heart. And that immediately tells us that we're dealing with a standard that is so much higher than anything that you or I would ever be able to generate in and of or from ourselves, right? That's why he says, blessed are the pure in heart. Because if we were talking about actions, we could look at people around us who are pretty good, who are pretty pure, and we could say, that's the standard. That's not what he says. He says, blessed are the pure in heart, which immediately tells us that we have to look so much higher than anything we see happening on the human plane around us. It's a different, a higher, an impossible standard that he's calling us to here. That's what this purity is. And to get an actual understanding of it, to begin to wrap our minds around this, we have to obviously, you know where I'm going, look at the ultimate standard. So turn with me in your Bibles over to Isaiah chapter 6, verse 3. I want to show you something here about the standard to which Jesus is referring. I mean, it's obvious to us that this ultimate standard of purity that is to define us can only come from the standard that God holds for himself as well. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 3 Isaiah is given 
this vision of the Lord's throne room. He says, well, I'll back up to verse 1. I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he flew. And one called out to another and said the following words, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. What do we see there? We see this picture of absolute, utter, perfect perfection in holiness where these angels stand there in the throne room of God saying nothing but crying out in praise to the reality of who God is in his absolute and utter perfection. Now, I want you to see something else. Turn with me over to Revelation chapter 4. You see, wow, that's an interesting statement. Wow, okay, that, that is powerful. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And yet... We've been talking about it for 30 seconds and we're getting ready to say something else, but I want you to see something here. From the time of Isaiah all the way through to the time of the Apostle John, here's what's been happening in heaven. Isaiah, Revelation chapter 4, verse 8. Day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. Since the days of Isaiah to the days of the Apostle John, all of that time, these angels have been there. Holy, 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 holy. For all of those many hundreds of years, the angels have been proclaiming the reality and the greatness about who God is in his most fundamental existence. He is holy. He was then, he was in John's day, and he is today as they continue proclaiming, holy, 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 holy. This is the standard. If you went back to Isaiah chapter 6, you find how John responds when he actually sees it. He says when he sees this proclamation, this declaration that has been going on for thousands of years, he says, Woe is me, for I am ruined. I am a man of unclean lips, and I live amongst a people of unclean lips. And now I am undone, for my eyes have seen the King. And they grasp the reality of who he is and the commensurate reality of my own bankruptcy. That's what happens when we look at the standard. That is the standard of purity that Jesus is talking about here in Matthew chapter 5. This is what is purity. He's not talking here about some kind of watered-down, half-hearted purity that is sometimes pure and sometimes not. When Jesus thinks of purity, what do you think runs through his mind? The God of heaven upon his throne who has always been proclaimed as being pure. See, the purity of God is synonymous with His holiness. His holiness is its the attribute about Him that above all others it makes Him great, majestic, glorious, and totally separate from us. It's the burning greatness that makes Him distinct from who we are. It is the awesome majesty that causes Him to look with furious wrath upon all sin. It is the incomparable, incomprehensible purity 
that causes him to exist in unapproachable light and to see his glorious holiness with any shred of sinful taint upon you is to fall dead upon the spot. It's the reason that no man can see God and live. It's founded upon the idea of him being separated entirely from that which pervasively defines us. And that is the standard of ultimate holiness that becomes our standard now for our own purity. When Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, he doesn't say, blessed are those who are slightly better than their neighbor. He doesn't mean, blessed are those who actually have a moral compass in comparison to those who don't. What he means is this, plain and simple. Blessed are those who live in light of the fundamental purity and nature of God's character. So be very careful here in your own life as you assess your purity. Don't compare yourself and get caught up in comparing yourself to the wrong standard. It's so very easy to walk around and compare yourself to others and and be tempted to look at this person on the street corner as you're walking by them and to think, yup, I'm getting there. Look at me. I mean, I'm so clean and washed up, and that guy, I don't know what he's doing. It's so easy to look at your neighbor or your coworker or a member of your family and think, well, at least I'm not doing what they're doing. I'm not engaged in that kind of despicable behavior. And you might be right. You're not engaged in that kind of awful sinfulness. And yet, you're absolutely wrong. Because that is not real purity. The comparative purity of how you compare to those who are around you is nothing more than a mirage of hypocrisy and self-righteousness. I hate to tell you. You see, a pure life is the life that is lived under the burning gaze of God who is described as holy, holy, holy. And your comparative righteousness, along with all the other people who are around you, melts away when it comes underneath that burning gaze. And that's so important for us to realize. D.A. Carson says, Inward shame, deceit, and moral filth, it cannot coexist with sincere devotion to Christ. And ultimately, He is our standard. So if we're asking ourselves the question, what is this purity? God Himself is the standard of that purity. What does that then look like in our life? What is this purity and what does it look like in our own life? I mean, if we're talking about purity, we've seen God's purity. What does that look like when it's transferred down to me? Well, here it is. The purity of God, what Jesus refers to here as purity, is nothing more than the holiness of God imparted through the work of the Holy Spirit, made possible by the righteousness of God's Son, all funneled down into your own life and lifestyle. In your life, what does this purity look like? Well, the word that Jesus used here for pure is the word katharos, which in the Greek language is a word that means to be free from contamination. It means to be unmixed. It means to go through the process of scrubbing something free of dirt and filth. It's like a, a, it's like a biohazard detox facility. It's, it's someplace where you've gone and just scrubbed every sort of impurity down and out. 
The person who knows God and has a relationship with Him doesn't try to establish the relationship by means of purity because when you, when you understand who He is, you understand the, the impossibility of pleasing Him based upon your own purity. The person who actually knows Him desires to be pure, desires to be clean. And it, this person begins to take action accordingly to purify its life, not to please God in order to find salvation, but rather because it loves God and desires a relationship and a lifestyle of purity with Him. And so this kind of a person, if you're asking, what does this look like in my life? It looks like you doing everything possible to scrub your life clean, not because you desire to be recognized as being pure by God, but because you love Him and you want to obey His commands. Recently, I was down in Huntington Beach. And I woke up in the morning and the night before I couldn't see anything out over the ocean. Smoggy, just filled with all kinds of crud in the air. I couldn't even see the oil stands that are basically 150 yards offshore, right? There was nothing there. It was just a wall of smog. Well, that night it happened to rain. And the next morning I woke up and looked out the door and could not believe what I could see Three miles, I don't know how far offshore it is, but miles offshore, there were these huge, majestic mountains that existed there that I could not see because the air itself was contaminated. And yet when that rain came and filtered the air out and cleaned it up and scrubbed it down, I could see with clear vision what existed out there. It scrubbed it free of filth and dirt. The air was, was scrubbed down, it was clear, it was pure, and it enabled my vision. And that is the effect of a lifestyle that thirsts for purity. It enables you to begin to comprehend and see the nature of who God is so much better. I could see beaches, I could see cliffs, I could see mountains, I could see forests on those islands, just clear as day. And 12 hours before, I couldn't see anything because there was something obscuring my vision. The life of the believer seeks to take everything obscuring that vision and scrub it down and get rid of it and purify itself. Why? Not to be accepted by God, but so that it can clearly perceive and see the nature of God. And that's what Jesus says here. He says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they are the ones who shall see God. Now, it's important to understand here that Jesus is looking at these people and he understands and knows that they don't get this at all. They don't see themselves as being empty. They don't see themselves as being poor or broken. And that's why he begins his list of beatitudes here by saying, before you can begin the pursuit of purity, you first have to humble yourself before the Lord and, and see a relationship built with Him. You have to recognize your sin rather than trying to justify yourself despite your sin. This is a theological theme that runs from Genesis through Revelation and is given to us here in a single, simple sentence. And we're told that it is possible for us to find this purity when it is based in the work of of Christ that has been accomplished on our behalf. And the only way to find that work 
is by finding a relationship with the God who saves. And that's why Jesus said, sell everything and come after me. And that's when your obedience and your purity will begin to mean something. This is what purity is. This is what it looks like. Let's ask ourselves another question. Why is this purity important? Well, for us to fully get this, we really have to go all the way back to the very beginning of the Bible. Go with me to Genesis chapter 3. Why is this idea of purity important? Now, you probably already know the reason, but I just want to highlight it for us here. If you go back to the very beginning in Genesis 3, what is the feature that marks Genesis 1 and 2 as being so very distinct? What is it? Everything is good. Everything is good, right? And when everything is good, what is man able to do? Walk in relationship with God, right? He's able to see and perceive God exactly for who He is. He's able to see Him very clearly. And yet in Genesis 3, the greatest horror that takes place here, if you, if you read this entire chapter, it's amazing to see the emphasis that's placed upon sight and vision of God. I mean, Satan even comes down to Eve and begins to tempt her by saying, you need to know something. You need to be able to see better than you can see right now. And that, that theme of sight is woven through the whole chapter where Eve thinks that she can see God just fine, but Satan tells her, you can't actually see good and evil the way that you ought to be able to see it. And it's the promise of better sight, better vision, that causes Eve to fall to the temptation of the devil. And far from being able to gain better, clearer eyesight about the nature of who God was, Adam and Eve actually end up losing all of their vision of God, and they are separated from Him completely. Look at the end of the chapter. We're told, Therefore, after having pronounced curses upon every party involved in this tragedy, the greatest curse of all, Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out, and at east of the Garden of Eden he stationed the cherubim and a flaming sword which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. What was the result of the very first sin in all of human history? Separation from God. It was the inability to now see him clearly. You see, the result of sinfulness is always and must be the inability to properly perceive the nature of who God is. Impurity brings separation. And look at what Jesus says. Those who find purity of heart, what is the promise? They shall see God. And there's, there's a certainty built into that grammar there. They will see him, certainly. They shall see him. But the flip side of that statement is also true and should stop us in our tracks. And it's given to us verbatim in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 4, where we're commanded, pursue holiness, without which no man shall see God. So if you're asking yourself the question, why is this command to purity so very important? This is the answer. Because with purity, you're able to rightly perceive the nature of who God is. Without it, you cannot see him at all as evidenced by the tragedy of what happened in Genesis chapter 3. 
I would say that that puts this idea into the concept of important categories. With it, you see God. Without it, you don't. And if we weren't paying attention before, we should certainly be now. This is the point of the Christian life. And it is fully dependent upon the work of God in enabling you to see your own poverty before Him, planting new desires within you that then result in your efforts to begin pursuing purity. So if we're asking ourselves the question, why is this purity important? Why should I care? Because this is the end game. If you want the short answer, go with me over to Titus chapter 2. This is the reason that Christ gave himself up for us to begin with. Titus chapter 2, verse 14. He gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless, you could insert the word impure deed, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are now, having been purified, zealous to go do good deeds. Do you see the order of things there? Christ gives himself up for our sake so that we might be made pure and then go do pure good deeds. It doesn't work the other way around. You don't start with the good deeds and then begin to find the relationship and then begin to appreciate the sacrifice of Christ. That's so important for us to understand. Why is this purity important? Because it's the very thing that Christ came to do. He came to establish purity in our hearts so that we might now know Him and walk with Him as a result a privilege that we lost back in Genesis 3. The point of Jesus' statement is very simply this. You can't sit around dreaming about ending up in heaven and trying your best to get there, trusting in your own good, pure deeds without there being any ramification upon the way that you live today. If you would see him in heaven someday, you must now live in light of what he has made you to be, a pure, redeemed, and sanctified soul. This is why this is important. So, the next question we must ask ourselves, what is the source of this purity? Well, the source of this purity is the work of God in your heart. The only possible source of purity is a heart that has been transformed by God. And that's why Jesus says, blessed are the pure. And then I, I, I imagine that he shouted the words, in heart, for these Jewish people who, di who just didn't get it. Because without the heart that has been transformed by God, by the will of God, there can be no love for God. And without love for God, there will be no desire to obey his commands. And it's obedience to his commands that then result in a lifestyle of purity. 1 Timothy 1.5 tells us, But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience in sincere faith. Paul there, he connects these ideas of love and purity for us. Love for Christ flows from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. And this... This is why this idea of heart transformation is so very important, because without a new heart, 
without a relationship to the Savior, there can be absolutely no purity. And without purity, there can be no vision of who God is. The heart is so important because it's out of the heart that the mouth ends up speaking. And that's why Jesus centers this purity not in our actions, but rather in our heart. Because it's the heart that encompasses the entirety of a person, his emotions, his or her will, the personality. The heart is the very center. It is the nucleus. From it, Scripture tells us, flow the issues of life. Out of the heart, the mouth speaks. Jesus says 10 chapters later in this very same book. So if there would be purity, it must be centered first in the heart. That's where purity, true purity, comes from. Unhypocritical purity comes from. And the only way for the heart to be made pure is to be saved by God himself. This was driven home to me really clearly a couple weeks ago. Right now we're kind of in a parenting phase with our two-and-a-half-year-old, soon to be three later on this month, where she thinks that she can you know, pretty much do anything that she wants. And it's our responsibility to instruct her that you can't actually do anything that you want to, right? And as people get older, they generally learn the concept that in this world, you can't do everything that you just want to do that pops into your mind. But in the heart of a toddler, in the heart of a child, whatever's in their heart, it just comes right on out. And when we're working with her to try to instruct her to say, you can't just do that, these words came out of her mouth. I can't do this. I can't do this. I can't do this. And I'm saying to her, you will do this, right? Or there will be consequences. But my intention with her was to seek to instruct her that you're right. You can't do this. Because in and of yourself, you don't have a heart that's been transformed to have the right kind of heart and spirit and attitude all the time. You can't do that. Now, your behavior, you must do it, but spiritually, you're right. You cannot do this in and of yourself. And if you're sitting here this morning thinking to yourself, I cannot possibly be pure. It doesn't matter what I do. It doesn't matter how hard I try. I cannot do this. If you're trying to do it based upon your own effort, apart from a fundamental relationship with the Lord where you have found reconciliation with Him, you're right. You can't do this. Because it's not about purity of action, you see. It's about the purity of the heart. And that is what Jesus is targeting here. It's purity that is produced by genuine righteousness that is based upon the work of Christ. And that is the only commodity that is worth anything before God. Holiness, as taught in the Scriptures, is not based upon just knowledge or actions on our part. It's based upon the resurrected Christ indwelling us and changing us into His likeness. And that is the only way by which purity can be manufactured in your soul. And without the manufacture of that purity by God in your heart, you cannot act in a way that is pure. No matter how hard you try, you cannot do this. Without Him, our hearts are desperately wicked. The heart is naturally impure, and there must be intervention that takes place in order to be capable of generating purity. You see, the Pharisees were easy on themselves, and they were hard on everyone else. True spiritual life is hard on yourself 
but is easy on others. A heart of mercy towards everyone else and a heart of invincible, unflinching judgment upon myself because I understand how far short I fall of God's perfect standard and all I can do is cast myself back upon him and beg him to change my heart. So, this morning, if you're asking the question, where does this purity come from that Jesus is talking about? Don't miss those two words. It's a purity that comes from your heart. And the only way for that purity to be found in your heart is for your heart to have been replaced by a sovereign work of God. Now, once that has happened, how do I further encourage and develop this purity? And that's where we need to end our time together this morning with that very practical and important question. How do I encourage the development of this purity? You say, I do have a new heart. I have been redeemed. It has been replaced. Fundamentally before God, I do stand clothed and cloaked in the righteousness of God. But how do I now further develop that purity and see it bear fruit in the actions of my life? What does that look like? Now that the order has been set, we've started with the relationship, we move to the heart transplant, now we get back to the actions that prove the reality of a pure heart. What does it look like? Well, let's go back to the first three Beatitudes. What did Jesus say there? He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What he's telling us there is that if you would live a life of purity, you must revisit the status of your relationship. Are there things that exist between you and the Lord where you have your grip wrapped around them so very tight that your knuckles have turned white? Or do you see yourself before him as being poor, with nothing to offer? You're clinging to nothing because you have nothing to cling to. If you would be pure, you must first revisit your relationship with the Lord and ask yourself that question. Am I poor in spirit or am I clinging on to my own little baubles and riches that are hidden away from everyone else's view? That then should lead you, number two, to hate your sin. And that's what Jesus tells us in the second beatitude. He says, blessed are those who mourn. What does that mean? It means that if you would live a pure life, you must hate that which causes you to be an offense against a holy God. Having recognized the poverty of your spirit, you must be reminded of the fact that your sinfulness before His perfect infinite standard is so rank and so out of place and should not characterize one who has been bought by the blood of Christ. You must hate your sin. Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn. Well, number three then, you must also then learn to love your Savior and walk with Him in light of who you know yourself to be. And that's the point of the third beatitude. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who walk in light of the knowledge of who they are and who God is and the glory of what Christ has done on their behalf. These are the steps to developing a heart that desires to act in a way that is pure. It's the dueling engines of love and hate that produce purity of life. It's the hatred for your sin and the love for the Savior. You see, most people hate God and love their sin. 
But in order to live purely, you must love God and hate your sin. And the only way that can happen again is through the total transformation of your heart at the level of your very desires. See, the reason for Jesus' statement is that these people did not understand the pathway to a pure heart. Again, they believed that relationship to God began with purity. But in reality, it's a relationship with God that results in purity. I refer you back to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, where we're told that love for Christ flows from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. There's this connection between the ideas of love and and purity. There's a reason why the expectation of purity is placed after the expectation of relationship to God. You cannot hope to be pure until you've seen the standard that His character provides. You cannot be pure until you love Him. And once you've seen Him, you cannot help but love Him. Once you love Him, you'll long to be like Him. Isn't that what Jesus said in John 14, 15? If you love me, you will obey my commandments. So, if your heart this morning is not pure, ask yourself the question, why? It's because your love for Christ is deficient. Because love produces obedience. And if your love for Christ is deficient, ask yourself why. It's because you have insufficient exposure to the perfect standard. And if your exposure to the perfect standard is deficient, Ask yourself why. Could it be because your relationship to Him is incomplete? See, a life that has been made right in a right relationship with God, a life that has been saved, the life of the true disciple as Jesus defines it here, there are certain natural manifestations of that life. We're told that you'll have new desires. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. We're told that you'll have a merciful heart. Blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. And we're told that you will also have a pure heart as well. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Let's close in prayer this morning. Our Father, we thank you again for your word, for the way that it does transform our life, and for the clear vision that we have as you set the standard so clearly for us. Lord, we understand that there is no way for us to meet that standard but by the grace of your Spirit, applying the work of Christ to us and conforming us into His image. And it's as that image is fashioned within our hearts that you begin to look upon us with favor and that we are able and enabled to stand rightly before you. And so, Father, we look forward to the day when we will stand before you perfectly, seeing you face to face without any sort or shred of deficiency in our own hearts. We, and in that day, we will give you all credit knowing that that work is due to you and your work in us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.